Hi, I'm Maria Stolger coming to you from Gadigal Land and welcome to episode 140 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. On Thursday night of last week, I spoke with previous podcast guest Idris Murphy in front of a live audience at the SH Irvine Gallery in Sydney. That's where the survey exhibition of his work, Back Blocks, is now showing and it continues until 26 March 2023. It features breathtaking work from the last couple of decades, paintings which shimmer, glow and transport the viewer. And this isn't the first survey show of his work. Back in 2009, the exhibition I and Thou featured highlights from the preceding 30 years of his career. My previous interview with Idris is episode 131, and it's one of the most popular episodes on the podcast. Some listeners have told me they've listened to it a few times already, even though it's one hour and 45 minutes long. So I'm delighted to hear that Idris's words are resonating with so many of you, and that has spurred me on to bring you this extra episode. You can see the paintings we talk about in this conversation on the website, talkingwithpainters.com. But really, if you can, get to the SH Irvine Gallery and see it in person. It is just magnificent. The SH Irvine Gallery, if you don't know about it, it's in Sydney. It's on Observatory Hill. And for me, it's one of the city's hidden treasures. Every year they have the Salon de Refusé and the Portia Geach exhibitions. But it's these fantastic retrospective exhibitions of contemporary painters which they bring to Sydney, which really contributes something special to the art scene here, particularly for painters. So this episode starts with Idris telling me about three stunning works which were hanging directly behind us as we were speaking. They're titled Somewhere in France 1, 2 and 3 and they were created out of one of the artist trips organised by King Street Gallery who represent Idris and on those trips they visited areas in which Australians fought during World War I. And these paintings are based on an area known as Hill 60 where the Allies had detonated massive amounts of explosives which created a series of enormous craters resulting in a huge loss of life. A hundred years later, the grass and trees have regrown in the area, but you can still clearly see the craters in the landscape caused by those explosions. And these three paintings, which Idris gifted to the ANU collection, depict one of those depressions in the landscape, the water that has since collected there, and a striking lone tree at the water's edge. Digging under the German trenches, basically, and the Germans were digging under our trenches to blow them up. I mean, it's... It's a, in one sense, it's a horrific kind of loss of life and wasted youth and all quiet in the Western Front. You can use it from both sides and it's horrible. But this place um, was called, well, it was Hill 60 and, and this was a conical hole. You don't get conical holes much, you know, this size uh, in the landscape. And Do you mean as in from a bomb? Yeah, well, there were 13 of these things that were dug underneath the German lines and 11 of them went off and one of these was this hole in the ground. But the hole in the ground was magnificent now. It was regenerated um, in a way where, you know, we're sitting and it was sunny and down the, the middle of this conical kind of hole was a beautiful little lake and a, and a tree um, and kids were driving around on their bikes, there were flowers there. So it sounds like pretty picturesque. It, it, it was, that was the irony of it. It was, it was picturesque and 
you know, the water reflections, which really got to me, because um, there's all sorts of things about reflection, thinking about who died there, it's a reflection of a different sort, isn't it? I was actually thinking about that because you have talked before about metaphor in your paintings and I think this is like a really good example. Well, first of all, these three have got a very similar composition, but they've got this lone tree with tree stumps in the background. And I thought, you know, you can't get a stronger metaphor than that for the sort of thing that you were talking about. Well, in the first war, when you, you know, I was reading some stuff about um, Berlin after the First World War, and there's all these guys with stumps, half their legs have been blown off, right? So there's all these metaphors about fallen trees or trees that were left, you know, lone pine, which we know so well. Um, and, you know, that's a metaphor, isn't it, I guess, for the last man standing or whatever, you know. Mm. So historically, there's lots of things. I, I, Paul Martin, who died last year, who I had a show with in Edinburgh, he was a bit of an authority on all sorts of um, um, religious icons and um, he, he was telling me about how um, icons don't have shadows mm. where, and, and so these, they, they have reflections but no shadows and the ones that do have shadows, they might be the dead ones, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of metaphor really. Yeah, yeah. Do you want the viewer to take away that meaning? Um, I mean, no, not necessarily. I mean, it's a painting. Um, If I had my own way, I'd say I'd want something that's beautiful, which is, you know, I've been around long enough to be... I remember sitting in France with some curators and art critics and some other, and I said something about beauty, and it was nearly like, God, you can't talk about beauty anymore. (laughs) It's so interesting you say this because this was one of the questions I was going to ask you because on Instagram the other day, I saw this clip of um, an American writer, a late writer, and she was saying, we can't talk about beauty in art criticism anymore. It's so old-fashioned that you can't get away with talking about beauty. And yet that's an inner sense that we have that brings us happiness. I was going to ask you whether beauty was important to you. Yeah, it is. It is um, for all sorts of, of reasons. Um, and I'm just thinking of the the, um, the writer. Um, she wrote a book called On Photography. Oh, God, who is it? Thank you. One, one of my heroes. And, and she writes a fantastic appraisal of that problem where beauty was sort of seen as a kind of... Um, upper class metaphor for having culture and so forth and beautiful things and I mean I want to go into the whole explanation but but what took over was interesting that's what took over and so that was a non-committal thing it was interesting Not, nothing else with that interesting because or it was just interesting which was a very um, American idea about art criticism yeah so, so, and she, she says in the end of it, you know, you don't call a sunset, which is just blowing your mind out, interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're absolutely right. There is a word for that. Yeah. And it's beauty. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I agree. I mean, yeah, sure, it's like lots of words which get used and overused and stuff, but there's some things... We, we can't get away from. Mm, mm. Well, I think when, when I see your work, I often 
that's the word that comes to mind for me. And I suppose it's got a lot to do with colour. Sure. And obviously that is your forte. Yeah. And going back to Matisse, yeah. that your interest in Matisse. Yeah. Um, do you get a book of Matisse out still these days and have a look? I do for teaching. Um, I mean, I was lucky because I had time living in France where I could read about Matisse sitting in front of Matisse's paintings. I mean, at the Pompidou Centre or whatever, it was close really. I mean, it's tricky because a great picture is not made for you to examine, really. It's made to you to respond to, you know. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of artists have talked about. I mean, Picasso said you don't ask a bird what song it's singing. But, but as an artist, you want to know how they did it. Exactly, that's right. The other thing that I want to talk about that, that is a big deal in your work is the tree. Yeah. You know, if we look around this, this show, you know, nearly every painting has got the tree in it. It's, it's everywhere. And to talk about this, I'd like to refer to a quote which I know that you value. Yes. And it's by the late John Berger, who was a Booker Prize winning writer, and uh, he was a painter himself, actually. He talks about the tree and points out that being alone in a forest of trees, that's, I'm paraphrasing now. Yes. So being alone in a forest of trees is not the same as being alone on a hillside where there aren't any trees or on a, on, on a, in a field where there aren't any trees. And, and that's because the trees provide a sense of company. And I'm quoting here, uh, the trees constitute a presence. They maintain, each according to each species, an extraordinary balance between movement and stillness, between action and passivity. And in this balance, their presence is palpable. And then he goes on to say, it was, um, it's always been this way because even when man didn't even have language, they would use trees to measure distance, height, space. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, and so he sort of says it, it, it always reminds us that we're not alone. Yes, that's, that's, that's a really interesting. I mean, for someone who was a Marxist, <laughs> he, um, he, he moved away from a materialistic kind of sense and he couldn't help but talk about those things. I mean, there's, there's a beauty in, in trees. And of course, you know, in the Western tradition, we have this huge canon, which, you know, I mean, with the Christian tradition, anyway, the cross for a start. But, but you know, historically, the tree um, has all sorts of meanings across all sorts of cultures, but usually in some reverential way. Um, and in this country, they're pretty weird a lot of the trees, and funny even. Les Murray called Australian landscape at one stage with trees in it. He, he, he said it was be the beautiful boringness, which is kind of nice. You know, I mean, at, you know, on mass, you know, when when European friends come here and we take them to places where they haven't been before, they they're not quite sure what to do with our so-called forest. I mean, I, you know, my dad was a forest officer, so I got to be dragged into all these places when I was young. Um, so there's, there's a residual kind of thing of that. Yeah. Um, and of course, for indigenous people, you know, just recently, Glenys and I went down to um, the south, the border, I suppose, between um, Victoria and um, New South Wales. And we went for a walk on this farm and Glenys pointed out the scar trees where these guys didn't know. And also that some of the trees had actually been planted along the way to a sacred site. Um, so, so trees have a whole range of significance 
here, um, and particularly for Indigenous people. Mm. Um, yeah. Right. Well, in the I mean, in the bush, you just get a. I mean, I can imagine you and it's places that you go to, like the West Macdonald Ranges, yeah. for example. Was it the West Macdonald Ranges? East. Go? East, East Macdonald Ranges. There must be like tangles of sort of shrubs and, and, yeah, thing, yeah, and trees yeah, and things like that. There is, um, and, and surprisingly big trees in some cases. Mm. Um, how, yeah. do you, how do you approach that when you're in painting plein air? Um, well, it's changed over time. Uh, basically, I mean, look, I was trained in the European tradition of seeing something in front of you and perspective and all that sort of stuff. So, so originally, that's how I, I, I worked. Um, when I came back from being in London for four years, coming back to the Australian landscape was really an interesting experience and, and trying to paint it. I remember once I got really excited because I painted a picture, Pioneer, and the rock in it looked like my rock, not Sid Nolan's rock or Fred Williams' rock or anybody else's rock. Um, um, and, and that was a kind of beginning. In fact, I did a lot of monoprints because I could go through them quickly and be, you know, radical, tear them up and stuff. And they ended up in paintings. Oh, really? Some of the collage? Yeah, that's how it started. Oh, really. the collage oh is was, it? I was going to ask yeah, you about Yeah, they were monoprints that. which I tore up that were no good and bits of them thought, oh, yeah, that looks all right. Or they were just one colour and I blocked out things as artists do, try to block out something to see the composition. So, but that's where they came from. I always thought that, you know, especially with plein air painters, they take, they do their small work in the bush or whatever, yeah. they bring it back to the studio, they pin it up on the wall, pin them up, and then they start sort of painting from, you know, that no, well, inspiration. Well, well, there's a real problem with that. Uh, well, that's something I did learn from uh, Henry Matisse um, because he talks about doing, taking a small work from somewhere and then sort of blowing it up, scaling it up and, and then repainting. And of course he's right. He, he says, well, when you first did it, there was a, some kind of rapport between you and it. It was, it come back loaded, you, 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 you looked at it, there was a response. But when you've got a third party involved, the, the final result is really a pastiche of what you did. It, and it doesn't have the possibility to be rearranged or rethought because you're, you're stuck on that, that view. And, and what do you mean by third party? Well, well, it's because something happens in a one-to-one picture but if you're looking I mean it's a bit like one of the problems working from photographs you know you start to take on the 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 idea of the photograph and this is a small work and you're going to make it a big work and the big work has got to have the same spontaneity well you're pretending in a way there's a kind of pretense about that which just doesn't work and and Matisse gave it up pretty early and I did too um so so I mean the small works nearly all started you know, 45 by 45 is about as big as I can take on a backpack. Mm. So that's, that's, the scale is sort of set by that. Um, but the, you know, that, even now those things change. I mean, look, basically, um, when I go to paint and I'm painting for a week or something and I've got 20 boards, I come in each day and I sort them out, the good, the bad and the ugly, right? And there's usually more ugly ones than the good <laughs> and the bad. Um, and then sometimes I repaint part of that and then I go out again and take it out again. Sometimes I, because I'm a cheapskate, I turn the board over and paint something else on the other side. Sometimes the other side works much better yeah, right. for some reason. 
But I usually Is that paint... primed? Is it not primed? Uh, some, look, I keep changing my idea. Sometimes they're primed. I did a whole series at one stage where I just used a roll and any paint that I hadn't used for a long time and just <laughs> shoved it on and thought, okay, well, see what happens. Does that free you up a bit more, do you think? Oh, yeah, like yeah. Well, be, well, well the, the whole point, in a way, um, is that spontaneous, intuitive thing. That's what, that's what you want to get to. Yeah. Well, do you find that's a rare state to be in? Um, it's a good question, actually, rare state. It's certainly... So the problem is you can't anticipate it. It happens outside you. And so something happens there where you give up control. Um, uh, Jeanette Witteson uses a phrase, what was that? Um, it, it's basically um, about surrender. Yeah. But it's a paradox because, as she said, it's active surrender. So that, that, that's, that's the crutch of this. When you get to great pictures, this is what's happened. Something transcends the, the skill, the ability of the artist. And, and um, you know, artists have talked about that quite a lot um, in different terms, you know, magic or... which is fair enough. Um, and and the, the thing is, that's why I read a lot, one of the things is that many of the writers I, I read um, can explain that or add to it in, in language which most artists don't have because, you know, you make pictures, the pictures are supposed to, you know, it's all that. Well, I suppose it's talking about getting into, into the flow, do you think? It's the same idea, yeah, do you think? Uh, yeah, or it's it more is, of a spiritual it is, thing? It is. It, it is a, it, I mean, it's a broad term, isn't it? It's mm. a spir- it is a spiritual thing in, in, in the sense that something um, is, is happening which you, well, active surrender is not a bad one. In fact, I'm just reading... Um, Bono's book at the moment, which is called Surrender. Yeah, yeah. Right? And um, Nick Cave, who is talking about the death of two sons, and you listen to the music, oh, it's pretty heavy, um, but, but it's also enormously inventive, creative, something's happening, all the electricity's bouncing. It's some, that's the problem, of course. You know, poets probably get closest Poets and philosophers, artists, artists do it there and mm. then you can't say much more about it. I mean, that's one of the problems, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I suppose it's hard to, ex- it, you can't explain it as well because there's no, there's no words attached to it. That's right. Um, actually, let's talk about the use of metallic paint because, yeah. you know, I read a really interesting thing. Somebody was writing about something that an artist friend of yours, Glenn, Glenn Barkley, yeah, right? yeah, was it yeah, said, yeah. and apparently he was at King Street Gallery yeah, yeah. at one of your shows, yeah. and you know it was closing time for the gallery, and um, Randy turned off the lights, yeah. and apparently you just the, the the works just transformed because of the, I mean, partly because of the use of metallic yeah, paint. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in a way, you've lost control a bit. Yeah. By using that. Yeah. Well, well. I mean, if you, I mean, it depends how far you want to go with all this. But if if you look at a lot of indigenous stuff, it's it much of it white and light colours, particularly are meant to transcend the material. 
They are, that's why they're, they're, they're considered spiritual or something. I mean, have a look at some contemporary indigenous people now. They're using aluminium and cut out stuff, you know. Have a look at that. That's why it's coming from a base which says, um, well, there was a wonderful little quote recently from a young Aboriginal guy, which sort of is left field to this, but he said, nothing is nothing. You think about that, nothing is nothing. And he's talking about how you see the world, right, from an Aboriginal perspective. And Stanner, the great anthropologist who coined the, the phrase, every when, which is talking about how we respond um, to time. We see time in Western canon as some kind of linear set of stairs. It doesn't work like that. For Indigenous people, there's the moment, Mm. and that is the time at one level, and time is every when. It's everywhere and every when. So, I mean, you know, the clash of cultures here was partly to do with, you know, we come, we, we, you know, the the people, I mean, my studio's at Cornell, so, so when Cook and Banks dropped anchor and, and, and named it Stingray Bay, well, they actually changed it later on because Banks was the big wig and they called it Botany Bay because he was going around taking not only spears, which we've heard to come back, which is fabulous, but um, all the plants. And, and you know, it, it's, it was high British culture. He's coming from and look at this plant. No one's ever seen this before. You know, we'll give it a Latin name and we'll take it home. And all the indigenous guys are saying, hey, we know what that is. We've been using it for the last 50,000 years. So, so, you know, wow. I mean, there's a lot got going on there. Yeah, well, the indigenous artists and elders that you've met have yeah. influenced you a lot in your work. Yeah, well, well it, it, it's mainly what I'm finding is how they see country and, and being in it and seeing it. I mean, look, there's great ironies in all this, is that a lot of the, the particularly the women who've painted, um, might have only painted for, you know, they might have been 70 and painted for 10 years if you're lucky. Mm. But a lot of that painting is because they were pushed off or taken away from their land and they're, they're, they're trying to recreate it in painting. And, and that's, a, that's a memory. It's a, an ongoing kind of metaphor. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you, you know, you've talked about sacred sites yeah. of, of the Aboriginal yeah. people. And you've also talked about sacred sites for, well, for example, the Neck. Yeah. For example, this painting here is Half Moon at the Neck. Yeah. The, the idea of it being a, a, a sacred site, there's that parallel with the Aboriginal and Indigenous culture well, well, as well. Well, there is. I've, I've been to places, um, Indigenous places, which um, I was told they were special and they were in national parks. And I've been painting red sand hills and, you know, and, and I look down and, and there's a skull um, where it's been an indigenous burial area. And, and when I was at Hill 60 painting where my grandfather thought, bought, and when I went for a walk, there were skulls still sticking out of the ground after a hundred years. I mean, because it's basically a very large cemetery. Mm. Yeah, th- there's all those interconnections. Does it feel... Like, when you know about the history of a place, does it make you approach that landscape in a different way? 
Yes, yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, uh, well, it, it makes you um, reconsider what you what you do. Um, but the pictures, they have to come from somewhere else in a way. I mean, that was a pretty extraordinary night, though. I do remember yeah. what kicked that off. And of course, I didn't paint it until I came back. But uh, towards the end of the time, we were actually very close to the heights of Gallipoli. Um, and I think the photographer that I was with and uh, someone else, I forget who it was, we decided it was our last night, so we get a cab through the cemetery, if you like, up to where the, um, the, the Australians and New Zealanders charged across this area and got cut to pieces at the oh neck. Oh, God. I mean, you know, that, that was just, that was horrifying and extraordinary. To, to, you couldn't, if you got up from one end and ran to the other end, some of them didn't take their rifles. There wasn't any point. You're going to get shot one way or the other. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of Turkish and Australian dead there, lots of bones. And um, so, so in that sense, it's a sacred site for us and for them, you know? Oh, yeah, I can imagine. But it was an extraordinary night. And you look out to sea, you're looking out to the Greek islands, you're looking out to Samophrase. Samophrase is where the, um, the, the, that extraordinary sculpture in the Louvre, the, the wind, wind victory, victory yeah, yeah. that's where it came from. So I'm looking out at night thinking, no one else has painted a night picture that I know from Gallipoli. Maybe I'll paint a night picture. I didn't know. I had to come back and do that. But it was a moment that stuck with me um, and that's what transpired. Well, I think you really sort of captured that feeling of the evening and that uh, one of the great things about your work is that sort of quality that you achieve by layering the paint, that it's almost shimmering, there's movement in it. Is that something you're trying to achieve? Or yeah, 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 I mean, uh, it is in a sense. I, I mean, if it's just in a formal sense about painting, you know, you want to have various possibilities you know you, it's a bit like a poet you know you collect um, words language okay and you don't use them all at once but they're there so a word comes you know you write a piece of poetry it sounds okay and then you think that last line no no I, there's a better word from that and, and somehow it just pops into place yeah so it, it's a similar kind of thing in a way I mean Formerly, you know, I used metallic. I, I started using metallic paint and I just mixed it as, as my white. So I mixed and, and it just it had all these extraordinary colours that just weren't in any books. You know, this, yeah, you know yeah. Matisse would have had a field day with yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, he would have. I mean, he would I have. I could imagine, it. yeah. I mean, you can imagine the cut, cutouts out of mighty bronze something or other colour or, you know, I don't know. I mean, Mind you, he did a bloody good job of what he had, I tell you. But, but you know, it's a, it's a 21st century. We, we can play with these things. But I don't make them a point. It's just another thing that I might or might not use, yeah. right? And if someone's bought them for me, I'll use them. So say you wanted to evoke a certain emotion. Yeah. Would you be thinking about colour to do that? No, look, I, I tell you, at the moment... Um, Robert Lineker has got a great black picture over here. Um, I'm thinking of doing another series of black pictures, right? Um, only because 
the night is pretty interesting for painters. I've painted in the, in the dark, which is when I was younger. At I, night, you mean? Yeah, and you yeah. Just go, no, yeah. I, 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 I took a lot of students out to the outback, and one of the trips, I, I, I did this thing about, okay, we're going to paint in the dark and not see what we're painting. We're going to look, but we're not going to look at the picture because wow. we can't do that. And we just had <laughs> a couple of colours of watercolour, two different blues or two different blacks or something. Yeah. And these things came out of that, which was extraordinary. But I, I actually, you, you try to find any nuance of light within that. And of course, if you're, if you're sitting there for 20 minutes, your eyes get used to it. And so, so I painted, I laid down on the road. I actually laid out prone on the road, painting with, with methylated spirits and acrylic paint, because methylated spirits dissolve acrylic paint and they make sort of these watercolour things. Wow. And that's what I was doing until a fox came up to me, <laughs> right up to me, sniffing, because he couldn't quite work out what the metho <laughs> smell was. And my students gave me hell about it for years. But, you know, all, all the night, you know, things, I mean, you know, Shakespeare, he talks about, uh, you know, the great sonnets which are evoking evening um, and, um, and evening as the ending of his, his life or his lover's life, right? Um, so, you know, there's all those connotations and the evening has, that has an emotive kind of thing. But well, it I has a mystery it, as well. But yeah, it does. It? And I, yeah. Can't, I, I, can't, I can't do that. I just have to paint things. Um, at the moment, I'm painting a series of things for my next show, which is based on a series of rock holes out in the, Kim, uh, out in the McDon East McDonald's. And... Um, it's been a long time since some one place has grabbed me so strongly. Um, so there's a series of about five pictures that are coming out of that and a whole lot of smaller ones, which, which is such different things for me. Why do you think it's grabbed you so strongly? I think because the colour is so damn extraordinary. Late afternoon in those places, and if you've got a water hole, the water is, is black of 10 different blacks. It's a reflection, it's a shadow and reflection, it's something underneath possibly. There's ancient rocks that glow better than that pink, just extraordinary. There's a certain simplification which I sort of want um, and also you, you know that the presence there, there's no one there except there's been there people there for a long, long time. Uh, in fact, the, the, the most extraordinary experience I had like that, which was even more palpable, was um, when I, I used to go to, and I still do, Mutawinji National Park, because um, I, I know some of the Barkindji guys who run that, and Badger Bates took me out a few times to, and let me go to places where other people weren't supposed to go to, which was great. But the first time I went there, I went for a walk, up one of these extraordinary canyons, if you like, American uh, phrase really, um, gorgeous, and pink sand, late afternoon, coming on dark, um, beautiful shadows, white trees against red and black rocks, little water holes, and I hear these kids splashing in the water. So I thought, oh, this is great, someone's having a swim, or someone's brought their kids up, or maybe it's Aboriginal kids, so I'll see them when I get to the end, I keep walking, I don't see anybody. I get to the very end, 
there's nobody there. I heard these kids. There were kids and I heard them. I mean, it, wow. it, that is pretty powerful stuff. You know, when I lived in London, I was painting with Andrew Carnegie, this friend of mine, painter, and we, we had a, a garage. And it was midwinter. It was absolutely freezing. A one-bar electric radiator, which did nothing. Um, and you get to the stage that sometimes you think, well, look, I'm here, I'm doing this stuff. No one gives a bugger. I could be dead tomorrow, nothing. You know, wouldn't even hit the fad, nothing. And what am I doing? I'm standing here, mixing up some funny stuff and plonking it on a canvas. This has got to be a weird, funny thing that I'm doing here. <laughs> Why? I'm yeah. freezing. I've got no money. You know, I'm worried about, you know, what the next job I'm going to get, which won't be great because I'll be painting a house or fixing someone's door. Um, <laughs> Well, I'm glad you kept on painting, Idris, in those circumstances, because now we've seen, you know, I mean, look at what we're surrounded with. Well, I think we've run, we've run out of yep. time tonight. I've so enjoyed speaking with you again tonight, Idris. It's just fantastic, and congratulations again on this magnificent show. Thanks. Thank you. for this wonderful talk today and for Idris sharing different aspects. Um, when you hear an artist talk, I've heard Idris talk several times over the years. He was actually my screen printing lecturer when I went to school. <laughs> I'm a failure, so he did succeed at everyone, but it's wonderful to hear you talk like this and, and to learn so much more and insight. And thank you, everybody, for being such a, a wonderful inquisitor. And I'd like to also thank um, the Galleries Events Committee who organised this talk tonight and uh, have done a lot of work behind it. So thank you to them. And the voice you just heard was the gallery director, Jane Waters. And thank you to Jane and Katie Ewell and all the events team at SH Irvine. It was an absolute delight speaking there. Also, next Wednesday night, the 22nd of March, I'm going to be interviewing multiple Archibald finalist Nick Stathopoulos at the Art Gallery of New South Wales in the Artist in Conversation series. And I would love to see you there. These live interviews are a lot of fun and the ticket includes a complimentary drink in the members' lounge afterwards and I've put a link in the show notes for that. Also, you can subscribe for free to the podcast on your favourite podcast app. Uh, also, the YouTube channel is absolutely free as well and you can subscribe to that. It's also ad-free. And um, there's also a monthly newsletter where you can keep updated with the latest podcast episode and YouTube video. And I've put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thank you for listening. And I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. Mm -hmm.